The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When we think of the sweeping constellation of music that is Americana, we could be forgiven for thinking of it as a genre that doesn't really speak to our lived experiences as queer black people. Emerging in the 1940s as music born of the weathered reality of rural life in the United States, Americana is perhaps most closely, if not accurately, associated with the region of Appalachia and the experiences of white Americans. But as my guest makes clear today, there is no Americana, no bluegrass, no country, no folk music, without the backbeat of African influences and the musical ingenuity of Black Americans. Paula Boggs fronts the Paula Boggs Band, whose music is described as Seattle-brewed soulgrass. She is an accomplished musician and songwriter who spent a large part of her professional life working in public service, serving in various capacities as an attorney for the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, and the White House Office of Legal Counsel. Like so many of us, the COVID-19 pandemic offered Paula a chance to reevaluate and research, and to come into closer relationship with her ancestral lineages, an experience which animates Janice, the newest release from the Paula Boggs Band. Today, we explore how the pandemic has altered our understanding of place and belonging, how the segregation of public radio helped obscure the West African roots of bluegrass, and why bluegrass is the genre Paula feels most at home within. She also shares the recipe for her 30-year relationship with her wife, a secret sauce, she says, that offers insights into how we might create a more graceful, civic life together now and in the future. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Paula Boggs. Paula, thank you so much for joining me on Busy Being Black and making time for me and for Busy Being Black's listeners. I'm I'm so excited to be here, Josh. Let's get let's get started. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, to open our conversation, I'll ask you a question I really come to love and which I ask all of my guests. How's your heart? My heart is multifaceted, shall I say. It is, on, on the one hand, incredibly full, filled with joy. I, I have been with the same woman for over 30 years, and each day is a a day of gratefulness for for me i i have the great gift of my mother living next door and at 86 years old she is a firebrand and inspires me every single day and you know the music keeps coming i'm still able to write it and and perform it and of course for me that that brings tremendous joy but we're we're also living in a time where you know if you read you know any of the news coming out of florida or tennessee or texas the lgbtq community is under great attack you know, don't say gay, uh, anti-trans laws, and and the like, and it is, it it is hard to know sometimes what the best line of attack response to all of that is. I know it it should not be do nothing, right? But what that something is. Um, is is sometimes hard to capture, right? And that can be frustrating. And so my heart is frustrated right now because I'm trying to, I'm, I'm angry, uh, but I haven't yet figured out the best response to all of that, uh, given who I am. And at least part of that response will be artistic. I just haven't figured that out yet it's so i love how the ancestors work there's a wonderful synchronicity at play here i have spoken about this on the show before i'm prone to nihilism i i think i, I just said it in a conversation with padre gotuma i just think it's a totally like reasonable response to the world to say that like this is all shit i give up um but also in the kind of Nietzschean nihilism, right? Like not existential, but the idea that you have to put the shoulder to the plow, you have to dig it all up, you have to destroy it, you have to rebuild something new. And so I was having a moment of nihilism and dare I say despondency um, a couple of weeks ago, because I just, you know, there was, as you say, you know, there's just this, and in the UK, it's particularly, egregious every day there's a new article there's a new attack on our trans siblings and I was feeling this kind of sense of nihilism and despondency and I thought mm, this isn't helpful for you what is it that that I do as Josh Rivers in the world that is a response to this um siege right that is what do I do what do I create and how can I focus that energy and that anger into something and I just had this really beautiful moment where I kind of journaled and I was like okay well this is how I'm feeling my response to 
the world is creative expression. It's to create space. It's to bring together people. It's to make beautiful conversations, moments for tenderness and joy. So I have to go do that, right? And so the exercise was a really wonderful reminder that in the process of creating Busy Being Black, something I needed to help me heal, um, that I had actually learned how to kind of regulate my my emotions and this kind of nihilism I feel. So I feel you. That's beautiful, you said. And I, yeah, I feel the same way. And I, you know, I try to be very um, judicious, uh, shall we say, when I'm when I'm entering the world of Twitter, uh, because it it is it has become so toxic. But in this latest wave of, you know, anti, you know, drag club sentiment and and legislation you know i've every once in a while i'll post so how how can that be constitutionally okay with you know pole dancing clubs and and any of a number of other uh forms of entertainment not being legislated that way how how can that even be legal you know, to do that. And, you know, it's, it, it's provocative, of course, but, you know, it spawns, you know, some positive conversation. And, you know, that's just a little way to, um, to use the tools I have available to, uh, to, to express how I feel about mm -hmm these issues you said that you've been with your partner now for 30 years and the first yes. question that popped to my mind is what makes a great relationship last for 30 years like what's what's the well, you know you only, what advice you, would you give us <laughs> <laughs> well you know you you should listen to my song on janice there's a there's a song on that album called 30 more years in a day and mm -hmm. it is an, an an homage to my relationship with Randy and I I think there are a number of things about how we move through the world that have culminated in you know this this enduring thing that we've created and and, you know, and it started at the beginning, you know, sort of the sort of the ground rules of our relationship. We didn't use that word, but at the end of the day, they were and they include, you know, our values. We stated we, we sort of had a a dinner where uh, Randy, before she met me, had made a list of the attributes she most wanted in a partner after a series of really bad relationships. And, you know, she had come to a point in her life where she said, I deserve better. And this is what better looks like. And she actually made a list. Uh, she wrote it down. She actually still has that list. I mean, she kept it. She still has it. And so we had gone on this date and 
she's essentially interviewing me for the job, right? You know, <laughs> and you know, she's like, you know, monogamy is really important to me. Oh, I'm monogamous, you know, and so there were these <laughs> these things. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, family was important to her, her family, my family is important to me. We try to tell the truth. I mean, you know, there, there were just, we had a value system, even though she's Jewish. And at the time of our conversation, I'm no longer Catholic, but I'm Catholic. There's something about Judaism and Catholicism that um, is very similar. Those two religions in the sense that they are as cultural in in many ways as that you know they are spiritual or any other uh adjective you might want to apply to them and and so we 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 saw in those those respective faiths though different there were cultural things that were very familiar uh, to us in the other person, right? Uh, and I think in those early years, that was that was important too. And 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 importantly, Josh, this is the last thing I'll I'll mention because I think it has been so central in our in our secret sauce is to never go to bed angry. Mm. And in the early years, sometimes that took until, you know, three or 4 a.m. Uh, because, you know, we're, quote, processing. But it is it is a rule we've never broken. In over 30 years of being together, we have never gone to bed angry. We've always found a way to hug it out and laugh it out that has been our our secret sauce you know i, I ask for two reasons i ask because i'm you know I'm, I'm turning 37 in a couple of weeks i haven't had that many long-term relationships i was outside of my parents <laughs> i think those are my longest relationship and with myself obviously um and i'm only now at, at at 36 turning 37 coming into an idea of myself as compatible <laughs> with 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 other people you know i've had a lot of bad experiences um that were not built on trust and mutual values and not going to bed angry. And so I, you know, I've recently, you know, last year was with someone, you know, who kind of lit me up in new ways. And I have a best friend who has taught me intimacy in a way that I could have never have imagined. So I'm, I'm, I'm preparing my own emotional groundwork for something bigger. And I also ask because I think there's something within this secret sauce that ought to apply to our civic life together too. I agree. I, you know, I think, um, I, I think our society could use more grace. Mm. And, and, you know, by that, I, I mean, it, I do a lot of speaking on, on race, particularly uh, 
after George Floyd's murder, for whatever reason, a lot of different people and institutions have wanted to hear from someone like me. And one of the things I, I told a group of mostly white artificial intelligence engineers one time was, look, you guys are scientists, right? I'm not a scientist, but I'm the daughter of one. And here's what I know about scientists. You expect failure. You, you expect failure and yet are undeterred by it. You keep pressing forward. You, you, you course correct. You, you don't beat yourself up around failure, right? And race work is sort of like that. There's going to be a lot of failure. People aren't going to get it right. People aren't going to say it right. People are going to stumble, right? Um, in the, you know, in the goal to move forward, there's going to be failure and we should expect it. And we should find ways to create spaces of grace for each other, particularly people who want to move forward, right? And mm. if we can do that, I'm not I'm not talking about the cynical people, I'm not talking about the evil people, but I actually still believe most people are good. Most people actually do, they don't have the tools all the time uh, and they they are afraid, people are afraid. And so, Creating spaces of grace, um, I think, is you know really important uh, in 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 the goal of, of the way I put it, America, and I know America best, right? I've lived in other countries, but I know my country best. If a, if America is to get off its race treadmill. It can it can only do so with some form of grace in the mix. Hmm. I'm thinking now of how how the way we treat ourselves, right, and and those we love. Um, we we can see those patterns. Right? I've been learning about fractals because <laughs> I'm reading Adrian Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy, and I'm really enchanted by fractals. I love this idea that for those who don't know that fractals are repeating patterns, and they're patterns that repeat no matter the scale. So the the pattern of a the inside of a seashell is the same as the Milky Way. So from the kind of the micro to the macro, these fractals kind of repeat, and I think that our interpersonal relationships are fractals too, right? That that we can see the way, sorry, not only our interpersonal, but our intrapersonal um, yes. relationships are, are fractals too. Like we, we see we see how we talk to ourselves and how other people are spoken to and speak to other people on social media, as you said, you know, <laughs> entering that space with a bit of with a bit of care. Absolutely. Um, so I have been immersed in Janice over the past week, um, the latest album from the Paula Boggs band. And I have to tell you, I was a bit stumped about how to start this conversation after, you know, How's Your Heart? Because you have a remarkable career 
2002 to 2012, you served as the executive vice president, general counsel, and secretary at Starbucks. Uh, NASDAQ named you its top general counsel in 2009. You've had a 14-year career in public service, including as an assistant U.S. attorney <laughs> and in various capacities as an attorney for the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, and the White House Office of Legal Counsel, you served under the on the president on President Obama's presidential committee for the arts and the humanities, and you're also an accomplished public speaker and musician. So I was like, "Shit, where do you start?" <laughs> but I've been so um, I think enchanted is the right word. I've been so enchanted by Janice, and I think that's the ancestors telling me start there. Um, so let's start there. Um, I read somewhere that Janice, you started writing Janice um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, can you talk about a little bit about how um, the COVID-19 pandemic kind of opened the kind of creative gates, um, if you will, um, that birthed Janice? I'm, I'm happy to, to share that. Janice, J-A-N-U-S is, you know, the god or goddess of, of change, of doors opening and closing, chapters beginning and ending. I mean, literally our year, at least in the Western world, begins with January because that month is named after the god or goddess uh, Janus. Uh, and so it didn't hit me immediately, but in the midst of, of, of 2020, so many very unsettling things uh, were, were happening that year. Uh, one, of course, was the, the launch of a, you know, once in a century pandemic, right? And so we were literally isolated from each other, locked in, right? Secondly, in in May of that year was George Floyd's murder. And 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 George Floyd's murder was catalyzing, but there were all these other heinous things happening in the in the race space around the same time. You know, you had, you know, Ar Armad Aubrey, who, you know, was jogging, uh, jogging while black. You, you know, you had, you know, Breonna Taylor, who was sleeping while black, right? You know, so all of these things were um, were in the, the public consciousness uh, around the same time. And then you, of course, had the toxicity of the American 2020 election uh, and Trumpism and all of that, right? So all of these things were happening in one year. Uh, and, the, you know, the beauty for me, at least, was the isolation of COVID gave me uh, a, a, a pathway to spend a lot of time in quiet, right? either in my in my home or on long walks 
or what have you, right? But but a lot of time that I, you know, in in earlier times had not permitted myself to have as much, here I was. And in the quiet with myself, I had an opportunity to really uh, reflect, but also research. So some of the some of the songs on Janice, one in particular, King Brewster, uh, which is the true story of my ancestor and his journey from being enslaved, it, it, his bondage from bondage to quote freedom. I learned a lot of things about King Brewster during the pandemic. You know, I really dove deep into research mode about this man whose DNA I share, right? Uh, and 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 tried to make sense of the line, the the you know unbroken line between his birth in. 1829 and George Floyd's murder, right? It is an unbroken line. Mm -hmm. So there were all these emotions and opportunities to express, express myself through art, through song, including the joy, including the gratefulness for having been with my wife for over 30 years. And, you know, the last song on Janice is Don't Let the Clowns Break You Down. That's right. <laughs> and, and what I, when I, when, when, when the band performs that song, I tell the audience, you know, the clown can be whoever you want the clown to be, but don't let that clown break you down, right? Because I wanted, despite all the, ugliness, sadness, trauma of 2020, I, I wanted to end my art with hope. And so that's why Don't Let the Clowns Break You Down is the last song on that album. You describe um, the music that you make with the Paula Boggs Band as um, Seattle brewed soul grass. I wouldn't have necessarily come to Americana or bluesgrass if I hadn't been prompted to by a queer black bluesgrass musician. Because I think growing up, you know, my family's from uh, originally from Tennessee. So I think my grandfather was able to trace our roots back to the to the 1800s in Tennessee or something. And, you know, we spent, I spent my childhood summers in Texas, went to high school in Georgia. So I'm kind of steeped in the in the deep, deep South. And I always saw, you know, bluegrass and Americana as something that didn't belong to my people. And so I had, had my own ideas about what Americana and bluegrass is. And I should say for, just to be clear for listeners as well, Americana includes bluegrass and bluegrass is kind of its own distinctive um, music, musical form. Um, so what was it that drew you to, um, to bluegrass as a, a way to express you know, how you feel and the music that you want to make in the world? I love that that question. And, you know, part of it is 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 almost being subversive. I 
I came to uh, learn about and really enjoy uh, the band Carolina Chocolate Drops when they first came on the scene in the early 2000s, uh, Dom Flemons, Rhiannon Giddens, and, and the like. Uh, and one of the things that band did for me, and they essentially these these at the time, you know, young African Americans, you know, descended upon. Actually, Rihanna Giddens is from North Carolina, but not all of them are. But they 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 pretty much centered themselves in North Carolina and took it upon themselves to seek out these black banjo, fiddle, other folk, bluegrass instrument, people who were still alive and learn from them. And then upon learning, they honored them by making, you know, modern music, but with these, these you know, 19th century instruments that they had studied and learned about, I was 100% captivated and fascinated by, you know, the journey that led them to this music and the music they created. And in fact, on Janus, one of them, Dom Flemons, sings, not only sings on King Brewster uh, with us, but he is playing two separate banjos, Bones, and jug on that song. And, and I think one of the coolest things, educational things that came out of it for me was this whole notion of the banjo. Because, you know, as I say to people, you know, if you hold, hold up a banjo and it doesn't really matter whether you're holding it up in front of a black person, a white person, or somebody else. It, the the knee-jerk response to it without more information is that it is a white instrument. This is this is a, a an instrument white people play, right? But the the truth of the matter is my people brought the banjo to this country. The, the banjo comes from West Africa. And, you know, there is no banjo in the United States without, you know, Black enslaved people bringing the banjo there. In fact, in West, West African, many West African cultures today, you can find the same instrument and the, the word, the, the, you know, the various African words for this instrument sound very close to what we say banjo hmm. and there is even you know the form of 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 banjo playing that is called a uh, claw hammer and and is hugely celebrated in bluegrass that's all black i mean there is no it's it's in it's in an incredibly rhythmic way to play banjo and that whole form of banjo playing does not exist without black people okay and 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 to extend it no rhythm 
in, in bluegrass uh, exists. If it has a backbeat in bluegrass, and many of those songs do, it came from a black person. That, that <laughs> did right. not come from Scotland. <laughs> Um, that did, you know, that did not come from Ireland. That that came from Africa. That backbeat in the bluegrass came from came from, you know, my people. And so, and so that recognition, you know, led me to, you know, to other explorations. And what I have learned, no surprise, pick. A blue, a white bluegrass or folk icon. I don't care who it is. You, you know, it can be Woody Guthrie. It can be, you know, it can be Doc Watson. I mean, it could be any of these people. And and behind every single one of them is well, who taught that person? how to play fiddle who taught that right. person how to play <laughs> banjo who taught that person how to play guitar it is some unheralded black person who taught these folks how to do what we as a culture celebrate right and back in the early days you know so we're talking you know you know post well even pre-civil war into you know the the immediate post civil war you know blacks and whites were even when blacks were slaves were making music right okay mm -hmm. and there was no sort of delineation around that music but what happened in jim crow during the jim crow era uh, were a couple things that continue to animate in 2023, frankly. Um, one was the minstrelization of Black people. So in Jim Crow, you know, white people would, you know, paint their faces Black and, you know, um, and use you know, masking with exaggerated African-American features. And that was a form of entertainment that denigrated Black people. And they would use those instruments, right, uh, to do it. And so Black people, so, so one of the things that evolved from that was Black people, of course, didn't want anything to do with that, the, mm. you know, the minstrelization. And so they backed away from those forms of music right but then the second thing was radio and radio segregated black music from from white music in mm -hmm. the in the country space uh in particular and so you had race music which was black music and you you know and then you'd have hillbilly music which was the white music, mm. uh, and 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 you evolved to this thing, not so different from Fox News today in the United States, where you know you you're only hearing a certain thing, right? You're only hearing a certain thing, and so on the radio, uh, you in fact if you if you watch the movie Elvis. 
uh, they go into it in in the in the 2022 movie Elvis, where Elvis is literally going into the black communities, learning you know music, and then once he once he records that music he can't use he can't he can't use the black musicians that he's been you know hanging out with um that music can't be played that's right yeah, yeah. yeah that music can't <laughs> be <quotes>. played <laughs> you know on you know certain radio stations because for for that to be it would be quote race music and we can't have race music on our hillbilly station right and so over time, that's that's what happened with, you know, country music and, you know, bluegrass music. Uh, interestingly, in 2023, if you look around the Americana scene, many of the Black artists, particularly Black women artists, are also members of the LGBTQ community right, it's yeah, it's yeah. it's an interesting phenomenon and you know and i i you know i'm part of that but i am not a unicorn there are no. many of us uh in this space now and it it 100 lifts me up busy being black returns in just a moment The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with Paula Boggs, and we're discussing how Janice, the new album from the Paula Boggs band, came to life during the COVID-19 pandemic. It seems to me that Americana, bluegrass, folk music is tied to place and rootedness, I think, in a way that maybe other music genres aren't known for it in the same way, all right? I'm thinking of like R&B, which is emotional, interpersonal, or rock, which has a much more sensual and sexual energy. And, and then you've got Americana, which again is this kind of blend of these kind of very traditionally American, I'm using air quotes again, um, music and musicianship. It seems that place is very important to all of them. And I, I mean, even this this learning about the origins of the banjo in West Africa and its implementation in the hills of Appalachia and the, the backbeat of that emerges as a soundtrack to these places. And so can you talk more about Seattle brewed blue soul grass? <laughs> you, I'm, I'm still trying to, did I get that right? Seattle yes, brewed you did. soul grass. Yeah. <laughs> talk well to us done, about that. Josh. <laughs> yeah, well done. Uh, well, you know, there, there are three, you know, components to, you know, our, our brand. Uh, one is, you know, starting with Seattle, it, 
it was very important to me and you know every Polyvox band member that we be identified with Seattle and why why is that because Seattle as a city uh is um is well known for attracting people and ideas that are out of the box are you know drawing outside the lines and it really doesn't matter whether you're talking about business or the arts or you know or anything really science um it has particularly over the past generation been this place where people come from other places and and the magnet for them is they get to ask why not in ways they might not be able to in other places. And I think, you know, part of that is, is due to, you know, where we're located. We, we, you know, we are very close to, you know, Canada's border. In fact, Vancouver is, is closer to us gener uh, uh, geographically than even Portland, Oregon. We literally look eastward, right? And and our our economy is hugely dependent on uh, on export, on, on trade, right? I mean, we are very connected to the east, <laughs> the eastern world, right? Mm in ways that a lot of places in the United States are not. Uh, and so the Seattle piece was very important. You know, the the brood was sort of a, you know, a, a bow to Starbucks and oh. my time there. Mm. Um, and then and then Soulgrass was uh, an attempt to capture in a phrase what our music feels like and sounds like the upshot of it is we use bluegrass instruments to create something that is not bluegrass yeah and it's beautiful and um in i and i felt myself at times feeling wistful and just when i was feeling wistful I would start to hear the lyrics in a new way because and that's what kept drawing me back to ebony revisited and mm -hmm. you know and it might also be because I'm in, you know, this, I, I was on this course with Advaya and Advaya is this kind of beautiful platform for kind of spiritual and ecological learning. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm on this course about kinship and they're talking about humans as islands and archipelagos and this idea that there is this connectedness between us and it might be subsurface, right? It might be uh, terraqueous, I think is the right word. Um, but it's there, right? And and how there's there's this beautiful conversation with Lenny Strobel, um, in res, um, in response to a question about dislocation, and mm. she says that one of the things that you have to do when you're in a place that is not your ancestral home, is you have to sit outside in the natural world, and she said that she would literally sit by this stream and she would say hello to the stream and she would say hello to the tree and, to, and she would sit there until she felt a response back from these more than human 
entities around her and that you kind of had to force your force yourself to be connected to this new place because a new place always wants you there and so I heard this yeah. in Ebony Revisited and I'm just going to read some of the lyrics um, for listeners I'm just a stranger passing through and yes I was born here but that don't make it home and so what I hear in this song which is about you know on the surface is I'm in a city, a country, a place I don't belong. I'm in a community I don't necessarily belong. But maybe it's also a song about our ecological dislocation, right? As humans, it's a, it's living through this pandemic time when we can't be connected to the people around us, to the places around us in the same way. I don't know. Am I projecting <laughs> to the song? No, I I think I think you're you're spot on, and it's. It's one of the the beautiful outcomes of that song. You know, several years ago, I was um, actually a really dear friend of mine is a black Brit, and I was I was in the UK, uh, you know, having having a meal with him, maybe even tea, and I was complaining about the reaction uh, someone had had to one of my songs. I didn't get it. I didn't get why this person had had uh, the reaction. And and my friend just slapped me, you know, metaphorically slapped me by the head and, and said, Paula, in his British accent, which I'm not even going to attempt, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, he was like, Paula, it's not your song. It's no longer your song. You know, when you put your song into the world, it is the song of whoever receives it. You know, it's, it's no longer your song. And there are certain things, I and he's right. Trevor is absolutely right. Um, Ebony Revisited is, is no longer my song. It is, there are things that caused me to to write it, of course. And specifically, I was in Washington, D.C. as an adult, which is my place of birth. And I I didn't feel it. I, I just, I didn't feel home, you know. Uh, in writing the song, I took this whole journey around, well, what is home mm. after, you know, after all? Is it, is it a geographic place? Is it the people you love is it you know what what is home right and i don't really have an answer even for myself to that question which i think is the beauty one of the beauties of that song but even you know on a larger scale i think ebony revisited is is exactly one of those songs where thankfully as a songwriter i'm very grateful for this uh, whoever listens to that song can make that song their own mm. uh and they can it can be whatever they want it to be whatever they need it to be for for them and as a as a songwriter really there's no, there's no greater gift. Mm. And it's, I think it, Ebony Revisited speaks to 
Soulgrass's potential um, because of its connection to place, right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that because it's rooted in um, places and spaces that we know that it, that it can apply to our lives because we are thinking about these big questions about where we belong and what what home is. And I guess it just strikes me that you know I'm thinking of. Um, Ebony revisited in concert with "Where's My Scarf," which is this, yeah. <laughs> which is so delightful <laughs> because you listen to it and you're like, "This, I feel like I should be singing about Paris or something or Europe or some <laughs> kind of like romantic summer, you know, in in Italy." Um, and actually, it's a list of all the things that you need to <laughs> participate in civic life during a pandemic. Right. And I was like, it's like quiet quotidian considerations about what we need. I mean, what was, why did that music and that musicality and that particular song, Where's My Scarf, make sense for you in that moment? Why the kind of lilting summary music? That's, you know, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, as a, as a songwriter, sometimes the, the lyrics come first other times the music comes first and I have no control over that it's it's not as if you know I say Josh okay I'm gonna write a song and I'm gonna start with the music this time that's not how it works with me at least it's just it just comes and with where's my scarf it it it's, it actually started with the music, right? And I'm, you know, I'm just kind of rifting, you know, oh, that's an interesting chord. What, you know, what should come next? And um, and so before, before I knew it, I had, I don't think I had the chorus yet, but I had sort of the, the, the chord progression for the verse, the verses. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's kind of jazzier than what we typically do, but I'm, I'm digging this, you know, this chord progression. And then it was after that, that I was like, well, what, what, what is this about? Right. Hmm. And I, you know, I was in one of those moods, I guess where i i said okay you have choice you can you can either be depressed by this pandemic or you can make lemonade out of it and and you you know like so many things in life we we have we you know not all of us have choice about everything of course but there are many times in our lives where we're at this cross in the road and we can go dark or we can go light right and we decide, right? We may put it on something else, but it, at the end of the day, it's us, right? And that's where I was. And in that moment of artistic inspiration, I chose light. And and that's that's how that that song came about. You you said in an interview somewhere that um music has the potential to deliver truths in a way that spoken word cannot. Like people are kind of in a different um, headspace, literally. <laughs> you know, there's research that shows yeah. that that poetry and music light up the same parts of the brain. And so when you've got yeah. poetry embedded with music, within the music, um, 
That's great. And it, it made me think of like this idea around Americana and blues and soul grass and bluegrass as evoking this nostalgia, right? I had a conversation a couple of years ago with Otamare Guabadia, who's a journalist and it boy. And he was talking about his love for Lana Del Rey, even mm. though, you know, Lana Del Rey kind of um, relies upon this Americana that is not real, right? It's a kind of fantasy. Yeah, yeah. Of, it's very of, Norish, yeah. Yeah, right, thank you. Yeah, exactly that. Um, but that in, in, in your expression of this nostalgia, it's actually giving us this choice that you're talking about, about one, about meeting the demands of the American dream, like which black people mm-hmm. have always done. If we if we think about Nicole Hannah-Jones's essay that opens the 1619 project, um, mm-hmm. but also that we can move through the world in a way that is, that I guess doesn't romanticize what we've learned during the pandemic, but that casts it in this kind of more bearable hue, right? That that we can take some joy in the searching for the scarf and the mask and knowing that these limitations are in place, but how do our relationships, how do our, our lives evolve around these changes? How does the how does our American life become different in concert with these changes? Well, well, yeah. And you know, I I was once in this um friendly debate with uh this this white canadian guy and he was he was um challenging my my statement around um black america and american music right you know i had said to him uh what i said to you that you know you can't you can't really point to any genre of modern american music without you know black american fingerprints on it and and what i said to him and i i tried to do it in as as you know caring a way uh as as possible was was this i said first of all you know with all due respect you you are canadian not american a and and I'm going to tell you that, you know, the U.S. brand of racism is one of the most atrocious in human history, right? So, so you, you are of a different culture, okay? So, so let's start with that. Not to say that Canada doesn't have its racism because it does, but, but Hitler wasn't coming to Canada for guidance on how to do what Hitler ultimately did. That he part. came to the United States and, and Jim Crow um, to take notes, right? Okay, so let's start with that. Um, secondly, what what makes the United States really, you know, unique? in in human history is, I mean, this is part of the American exceptionalism. There are a lot of great things about American exceptionalism, but but the reason the the sort of race issue is more uh, challenging in the United States than even in Brazil or some other places where there was transatlantic slavery is because 
it was only here, okay, that Black people were by law subhuman, okay, subhuman, okay. So, so the reason why our fingerprints are on every genre of American music is this. In a societal norm where every cue is telling you you're subhuman, music was our way to remind ourselves we were human. Mm. Music was our only tool to to say this is who we are it was our only it was our it was our way to communicate in ways that the slaver couldn't understand you see so we're we're like the only culture on american soil where music wasn't a nice to have it was a must have it was the it was the only way we could remain human was through our music right and that's why that's why it's no more it's no more complicated than than that and so you know that journey inspires my writing josh you know every time every note um i write is is honoring what came before with 21st century eyes and, and, and sensibility. That's really beautiful. And it's such a wonderful reminder as well, right? That, um, that we have title, you know, what, who was it that said this? Was it James Baldwin? Um, I think he, he wrote this uh, in the fire next time and actually gave it as part of a speech at Cambridge or Oxford. And when he said, you know, we built these, these railroads, we raised your children, is if one has to prove one's title to the land, is 400 years not enough? And I think of that, I hear that in what you're saying as well, that the very fabric of American life, for, for better or worse, uh, and indeed, the kind of soundtrack of America is is blackened in the best yes. possible way, right? Like it, 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 it there sure is. is. No, we are the fabric and the th the chords. Right? <laughs> I don't know. I'm we, trying to we, extend know, this are, metaphor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we are, and you know, one of the. I mean, another way, you know, to to look at it. I mean, pick your your statistic and people you know, argue about it, but let's say humans as a, as a species has, has been on this earth for, you know, 6 million years or whatever. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, the, the, the concept of race is only 400 years old. I mean, the, the, mm. the whole notion of race didn't even come into consciousness uh, until the the 1500s, and what else was happening in the 1500s? The transatlantic slave trade, right? So, so the whole 
concept of race was a way for people to do something inherently evil towards other people and have, you know, sort of a sociological justification for doing something that was hugely profitable, but also inherently evil, right? And to, you know, sort of paint the the Christian brush on it too. And they could they could do it all by this, by this whole concept of race and you know these people not being as good as or less than or whatever, right? But it's a relative, you know, in the in the history of of humankind, it's a relatively new and quote convenient concept, right? It's a very it's convenient. a convenient <laughs> it's a convenient concept. I mean, you know, in the in the history of humankind, it's only been around for you know what is that? I don't know. 0.1 percent you know i don't know i you know i don't know what the math is but but infinitesimal right mm. in the context of human history i mean people will say oh well moses was a slave yeah but but the whole concept of yeah. race didn't exist when moses was a slave i mean he was just a slave and he could buy himself out of it or somebody could for him and his children wouldn't be right so you know this brand of what happened here you know there's it 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 actually isn't i mean it's it's logical it's it's actually logical it's logically evil but it but it it had there is a logic to it Hmm. and you know and i think that um you know our healing you know, must include, you know, <laughs> accepting truth, right? And that's not, you know, to beat anybody up or to have anybody feel guilty or whatever that that those talk tracks are. It is, you know, whether it's a relationship between two people or <laughs> a nation, you you can't move forward in the absence of, of truth. Paula Box is a musician, public speaker, writer, and lawyer. You'll find links about Paula and the Paula Box band in the show notes. Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness. And my guests are those who have learned to live, love, and thrive at the intersection of their identities. Your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.